So Amos, chapter 6, woe to the complacent. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, to you who feel secure in the Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation, to whom the people of Israel come. Go to Kelna and look at it. Go from there and to the great Hamath. Then go to Gath and Philistia. Philistia. Are they better off than your two kingdoms? Is their land larger than yours? You put off the evil day and bring near the reign of terror. You lie on beds inlaid with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest solution, sorry, use the finest lotions. But you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. The sovereign Lord has sworn by himself, the Lord God Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. If ten men are left in one house, they too will die. And if a relative who was to burn the bodies comes to carry them out of the house and asks anyone still hiding there, is anyone with you? And they say no. Then he will say, hush, you must not mention the name of the Lord. For the Lord has given the command and he will smash the great house into pieces and the small house into bits. Do horses run onto, into, on the rocky crags? Does one plough there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness onto, into bitterness. Who will rejoice the conquests of Lodabar and say, did we not take Canaan by, by our own strength? For the Lord God Almighty declares, I will stir up a nation against you, O house of Israel, that will oppress you all the way from Lebo, Hamath, to the valley of Arabah. Now I've got to dial this back a little bit, friends, because the reading that Debbie did from Amos today, uh, the tone is not a feel-good one, is it? You know, this is, this is uh, fairly heavy stuff. So there's a time to be joyful, but um, there's also a time to take life seriously. And so we're going to start to take this time seriously now and uh, come to the Lord in a word of prayer now and ask for his help to, to do that. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this time that you've called us as your people and gathered us together to hear your word. We give you thanks that we can hear it together and think carefully about it now. Lord, we pray that this time might be beneficial for us, that we might be people who grow to love you more, grow in our trust in you and, and be grateful to you for your goodness to us in Christ. Thank you for this time now and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago now, I worked as a high school teacher and one of the jobs that teachers get to do is take kids to sport. And the sporting activity that I took a group to was uh, indoor rock climbing. Uh, and during the time there, as a teacher, you're a little bit you know, concerned about safety when you've got teenagers scaling walls and getting up high. And so I had a chat with the staff about the safety of the place and what their record was like. And of course, uh, they used you know, fairly solid ropes and harnesses, things that are so heavy they'd, they'd easily hold up me, and in fact, they'd hold up a tanker. Uh, they were very good bits of gear. But like any tool, uh, it's not the tool that's always the key thing, is it? It's how you use the tool. 
And so as I chatted with the staff there, uh, he did tell me about one guy who, um, now I don't want you to get too all, all too worried here because it's, a, it's got a good edge to this story, so don't, don't panic. But uh, one guy, uh, he didn't put his rope on properly. He didn't hook his carabiner to the, to the rope in the right way. And he climbed up a wall that's taller than the side walls here of the church building. And when he got to the top, he was all very happy. And, and then he decided to, you know, come down. Except the problem was his rope wasn't attached to the carabiner. And so he came down and broke both legs. Uh, now, I've got to say, there is a bit of a, a good news story here. The, the guy apparently did, did recover. Uh, and he, in fact, he was so keen, he, on his recovery, he went back to that place and Rock climbed there again. So it's kind of a, a good news story to that extent. But the next time we went around, he didn't misplace his trust in the rope and the carabiner. Uh, his first mistake was that he was taking a big risk and he thought he was secure and he thought he was okay. Uh, the next time round, he made sure he wasn't complacent when it came to rigging on. And the first time, he found out that even though he had feelings of security, those feelings were very well misplaced. Now, the reason why I mention that story is because it picks up on this theme about misplaced trust. Have you ever put your trust in something that, that didn't warrant the trust? That guy thought he could, you know, thought he was okay, but he had his trust misplaced because things weren't sorted out. Now, this is not going to be a, a pep talk on how to make sure you rig up your harness when you go into a rock climbing next. This is not about that. This is not a, a talk about, you know, making sure you don't mistrust your superannuation with some dodgy provider. Today, we're going to be thinking about more profound things, where our ultimate trust lies in life. And so, it's a good time for us to reflect on how much we really do trust the Lord, both in our lives and in our deaths, because we'll be meeting him. And I think that's something that uh, Amos deals with in, in this chapter. This is a topic that comes up for the people of Israel. Some of you might not have been here for our series on Amos, so I'm going to talk briefly about the structure. In chapter 1, there's a focus on the judgment to the nations around Israel, but then the the focus becomes, surprisingly for Israel, on Israel and Judah itself. In chapter 3, we're reminded that Israel had a, a very special relationship with God, but it was a relationship that they, they broke the terms of, and the prophets were the ones who were to uh, put them on notice that they were going the wrong way. And in chapters 4 to 6, we get a record of the ways that God had tried to warn Israel through... Uh, some milder judgments, but then ultimately pronouncements on judgment because they would fail to turn from their ways. And that brings us to chapter 6 today. That's the context. This is a judgment oracle that we get in chapter 6. Now, in terms of where we're up to in this stage of history, if you're not really sure, uh, that's why I'm going to say a few words about that now. Uh, this, we're given a brief at the start of uh, Amos about who the kings are in Judah and Israel. That's King Uzziah who reigns in Judah and Jeroboam reigns in, up the north in Israel. It's Jeroboam II. 
The time in history is about 750 years before Jesus and it's the time after King Saul, King David and King Solomon. It's the time during a divided kingdom. And the interesting thing about this uh, time of history was that uh, Israel had actually been pretty prosperous during the times of the reign of Uzziah and Jeroboam II. We find out that uh, King Uzziah down the south in Judah, he even uh, conquers as far down as the Red Sea and puts a fortress there. So he expands a lot of land there and he he expands across as far as the Mediterranean Sea. He wants access to the Mediterranean. So down in south, things have been expanding pretty well. And up the north, Jeroboam II has taken a lot of land up even and around Syria and conquered even the Syrian capital, Damascus. And so at this point in time in history, things are kicking on a little bit. It's a little bit of a boom, if you like, for Israel. It's a prosperous time and they took money uh, from people who they conquered, who gave them tribute. And I think there was even tolls they could collect for people who wanted to travel through the land. But for such a prosperous and uh, decent time for them, heading back almost to the, to the stages of King Solomon and how, how prosperous they were then, things don't sound good in this book for Israel, do they? Things seem to be falling apart, delaminating. And so the question is, for such a prosperous time to, to head south, what went wrong? Well, we see some of what goes wrong uh, from what Amos has already said in chapters previously, but we start to focus on a few other dimensions about what's gone wrong for Israel in the book of Amos today and in chapter 6. And so if you're looking on, I'm going to have a sip of my water. We're in point number one. That sounds hard, doesn't it? We've been going for a while and we're only at point number one. Point number one, our security mustn't be in the wrong things. That's because we see from the people of Amos' time, some of the powerful are denounced for their complacency and their sense of security in wrong things. We see this in chapter 6, verse 1. If you're following along, I'll read from 6, verse 1. Woe to you who are complacent, in Zion. And to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation, to whom the people of Israel come, go to Kalna and look at it, go from there to Great Hamath, and then go down to Gath in Philistia. Are they better off than your two kingdoms? Is their land larger than yours? Well, in verse 6, uh, the notable Sorry, chapter 6. The notable men of Israel are in the spotlight. And their problem is that they're complacent. They're they're flippant, if you like. They feel secure. And their current feeling is it's a bit like uh, Australians when you say, you know, how are you going? And they say, oh, she's apples, you know, good as gold. So they, they feel like everything's okay. But Amos challenges them, even he goads them a little bit to look at these other, other cities, uh, And the implication seems to be that, yeah, Israel and uh, Judah, they're even doing better than these other places, you know. Their their land's even larger than those other places. And so it might be a way of saying, you know, we can even boast over these other people. We're doing better than them. But the powerful are denounced for 
their complacency and a sense of security in the wrong things. Uh, if we dig a little bit deeper, we notice they're complacent on Zion and they're secure on Mount Samaria. Now, these were religious centres uh, in Samaria. That was the religious centre for the people in Israel that they went to. And in Zion, that's where the temple was. But the problem with their approach to the Lord in these religious centres seems to be that it's a bit of a sham. Uh, in chapter 5, 21 to 24, we see that their religious worship is just going through the motions. They don't, they don't have a genuine relationship with God. Their lives don't seem to show evidence of a living connection uh, with the Lord their God. And so even though they might feel secure in that religious worship, it's just really a sham. And so it's, it's a judgment that's pronounced for them. Uh, the news that Amos is saying is it's a shame you feel like everything's okay because things aren't going to work out. People can feel secure at times, uh, but after a while, when they realise that things aren't working out properly, feelings change very fast. Like the rock climber who I mentioned, uh, when he realised he wasn't really clipped in, uh, his feelings turned. And that's, that's what's going on here too. Israel's getting a warning that they shouldn't feel complacent or secure. Now, this kind of warning uh, is good for people like us to hear too, isn't it? We, we shouldn't just take our relationship with God for granted and think that we can just live in sin and that everything's okay. And we shouldn't uh, be forgetful of God and live like he doesn't exist. Jesus challenges the people of his time uh, not to live in a complacent way as well. In the parable of the rich fool, he talks about uh, the fool who decides he's going to build bigger barns. And he says, this is the quoting the parable, I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. There's his assumption. I've got plenty of years to go. Take life easy, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get, get what you've prepared for yourself? Well, the answer is certainly not him. He thought he had many years ahead uh, and was looking forward to all that. But that very night, God was going to take his life. He was complacent. He, he might have felt secure, but he's not in control of his life. And so the challenge for us is to learn from Israel and to, to learn from that parable, uh, not to uh, be complacent about our walk with the Lord. Uh, our challenge is to be grateful for the relationship we've, we've got with God and to take that relationship seriously and to walk closely with the Lord. The next thing we see in Amos is that the powerful are denounced for the people that they exploit for their own net benefit. We'll pick this up in verse 3 if you're following along. It says, You put off the day of disaster and bring near a reign of terror. You lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fatted calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on your musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowls, bowlful and use the finest lotions 
but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. There's a reference in verse 3 to them putting off the day of disaster. It may be that they're, they're trying to not front God and repent. They're not thinking about turning back to God. And instead they get on with living in a way that's rebellious. Amos criticises those who seem to have extravagant luxury by comparison to other people. They've got beds of ivory. They dine well. Normally uh, people would have eaten their, their barley and their grains and some other vegetables and maybe not had lamb all the time. But these people uh, seem to be dining on choice lambs and fatted calves. This might be their regular diet. And they're compared to um, David playing on these instruments. It seems to be a bit of the good life. They're, they're having lots of wine and some fine lotions. The impression is that they're pretty well off. Uh, but what we've seen from the book so far is that there's uh, a substantial amount of inequality uh, within that society. And others aren't so well off. Others, in fact, are getting fleeced through bribes. We see in chapter 2, verse 6, they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. Women oppress the poor and crush the needy. You trample on the poor and force him to give you grain. You oppress the righteous and take bribes and you deprive the poor of justice in the courts. There's, there's big problems for those who aren't so uh, powerful in that society. And we're given a picture of the, the rich who, who use their power at the expense of the poor. And we see that kind of thing can still happen today, can't it? Uh, from time to time, shows like A Current Affair screen on people who are overseas backpackers who work uh, as fruit pickers and things like that and some of them find it very difficult to speak the, the language and they're paid very little. They're not paid the award wage and they find themselves at great disadvantage even trying to get out of those situations. And the message here from Amos is that this uh, sin of treating people badly, not loving your neighbour in an economic sense, matters to God. God knows what's going on. It's not a surprise to him and there is going to be a reckoning. In fact, even as uh, we live as Christians, it still matters, doesn't it? Sin matters uh, in economic matters, how we treat people. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, 28, 28, he who has been stealing must steal no longer but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. And so sin matters in an economic sense. And furthermore, some Christians uh, have even had, or those who profess to be Christians, have even had a reputation at times for not paying their bills. And from time to time I hear people say, oh, someone say, yeah, he, he says he's a Christian, he goes to this or that church, well, he hasn't paid my bill. And, I, and that kind of annoys me, actually. Um, but, you know, it doesn't matter whether it annoys me, because God knows. So in summary of this uh, section of scripture, the powerful are denounced for their complacency, their sense of confidence in the wrong things, and they're denounced because they've exploited people for their benefit. 
Well, this is not exactly a, a feel-good story, is it, friends? I'm sorry if you came to church hoping to be thinking that everything's going to be just, you know, happy music and we're all going to bop around the whole time. This is, there's a time for everything and this is a, a time to, you know, be confronted with some harder things. And in the next section, we see that there's a divine promise of judgment and an illustration of some devastation to come. I'll pick this up in verse 8 if you're following along. The sovereign Lord has sworn by himself, the Lord God Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. Well, this is a time of prosperity, relative prosperity for Israel, both economically but also in military means. They seem to have got their act together and organised even building some fortresses. And they're proud about that too. They're proud about having their defensive fortresses, which they trust in. But the problem is they, they're not trusting in the Lord as a nation. And their pride seems to accord here with their, their fortresses, but in other areas of life as well. But that, that pride's going to be changed as well because God's going to deliver up the city and everything in it. That's a fairly short couple of sentences, but it's, it's overwhelming. In the next couple of verses, in verses 9 and 10, we get some riddles. Uh, I don't know how you go with riddles. Did you figure this one out? Uh, I'll read it out, verse 9 through to 10. If 10 people are left in one house, they will die too. And if the relative who comes to carry the bodies out of the house to burn them asks anyone who might be hiding there, is it anyone else with you? And he says, no. Then he will go on to say, hush, we must not mention the name of the Lord. Well, what's going on here? Well, it seems to run along the same theme of destruction. Even if uh, 10 survive, they're not going to survive very long. It says they'll die too, probably from disease or starvation. Uh, this is the idea that where things get decimated, uh, reduced to a tenth. Uh, and to get rid of disease, it seems that there's burning of bodies. And then there's the comment about, hush, we mustn't mention the name of the Lord. And presumably, this is the way of saying, you know, we don't want to start any more judgment off if we, if we talk about the Lord. And that's not my idea, but this is what one commentator said. To mention Yahweh's name would be to invoke further his presence and hence to court further death. So that's why they're saying don't even don't mention Yahweh's name. And so we've seen here a divine promise of judgment to come for rebellion and wickedness and as a promise of devastation. What we see here is that uh, God doesn't put up with rebellion forever. There are limits before he brings a judgment day. And the next section we find out that there's an, an announcement of judgment by a foreign invasion. So I'll read from verse 11. For the Lord has given the command, he will smash the great house into pieces and the small house into bits. This could actually be a reference to uh, the earthquake that's mentioned in verse 1 and later in chapter 9 there's uh, things toppling down. 
So it could be judgment through an earthquake. In verse 12, do horses run on the rocky crags? Does one plough the sea or plough there, which would be the rocky crags, with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. You who rejoice in the conquest of Lodabar and say, did, not, did we not take Canaan by our own strength? For the Lord God Almighty declares, I will stir up a nation against you, Israel, that will oppress you all the way from Lebo Hamath to the great valley of the Arabah. In verse 12, there's a question that invites the answer, no. Uh, do the horses run on rocky crags? And there's, there's a little bit of a textual uh, question in, does one plough the sea with oxen or, or does um, one plough the rocky crags there? And, of course, the answer is anticipated that, uh, no, the, the horses run on the nice straight flat ground with the chariots and things like that and no, the oxens don't go and plough the sea. So the answer is anticipated as being, no, the, in fact these things are absurdities is what Amos is saying. And it's also absurd what Israel's been doing too, turning justice into poison. This is the idea that, you know, you give someone a, a nice berry but it's a poisonous one. Well, that's, that's handy. Uh, and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness is what they're they're saying there's no justice. This bitterness is literally uh, wormwood, which is a, uh, apparently one of those bitter plants you can get in the Middle East instead of being nice fruit. This is absurd what they're doing, is what Amos is saying. And then he goes on to get them to reflect on some of their military victories that they've won. And in some ways the prophets start to wind people up. They have a bit of a a, a joke with them. Uh, there's a play on words to make this point. Uh, this place that they've conquered, Lodabar, there's a spelling issue which means you could also read that as it's nothing. It wasn't a very big deal to take. In my family there's a joke where someone says, you know, it's just a nothing. And I'd have to explain that joke later, but it's got to do with a speech impediment too. <laughs> Suffice to say, uh, it's not a big deal that they've took this little... It's like taking Telly Point, you know? Oh, what, well, big deal. You know, Telly Point's not a big place. Uh, that's what he's saying. You know, they think they're big heroes, but this is really a nothing that they've t overtaken. Uh, and they're doing things again, taking this place, Karnane, uh, and, of course, that's got to do with the words for horns, and the horn's the symbol of strength, but he's saying, well, yeah, you take it, but you do it in your own strength. You're not trusting in the Lord to be the one who wins your victories for you. And so it's, again, like the pride they had in their fortresses. It's all about them. They're not, they're not really trusting in the Lord. And that's, the, that's the, um, the goading, if you like. They feel complacent. They feel secure. But their confidence is in their own strength. It's not in the Lord's. And in verse 14... God is going to use another nation to meet out his judgment upon their rebellious and their wicked ways. In fact, the Assyrians invade twice. Subsequently, they invade in Judah. And that's, I think, Tiglath-Pileser III. He's a, an Assyrian who um, did a lot of damage. And then Sargon II. 
Later on, Babylon invades as well. And so here there's an announcement that they're going to get their comeuppance, that they cannot be flippant in the way that they're treating the Lord. So what has gone wrong for Israel? And was this something that has just taken these people by surprise? They didn't know this was going to even come their way. Well, no, it hasn't taken them by surprise. They understood their relationship with the Lord. In Exodus chapter 19, we're told that God rescues his people from Egypt. He saves them. He redeems them. He takes them out of that furnace and brings them to himself. And so God saves them, and when he does, he challenges them to see whether they're willing to be his people. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 4, he says, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. This is God took them out by a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night and guided them out to himself. And then they're invited to be God's special people in Exodus chapter 19. He says, Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you'll be my treasured possession. And the people responded together, we will do everything that Lord, the Lord has said. Now this language is very lofty language. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, well, God actually doesn't expect them to be perfect. He provides a sacrificial system for them to deal with their sin. But it's still their responsibility to offer the sacrifices and to walk with the Lord. Out of all the nations, they'll be his treasured possession. This could be a reference to the treasure, the gold that's in the temple, some, some things which are very special and set aside. This is what they'd be like to him. But it could also be a reference to like when kings had uh, alliances and a king might have had his most trusted ally and close ally. This is the language of a good connection. And the people respond that they'll, they'll do everything that the Lord has said. They're willing to be uh, the Lord's people. And so the law is then handed down, which sets out the terms of that relationship. There's a covenant relationship, an agreement uh, that God sets the terms of, and the law is given to outline and describe how they're to live as his people. And there's consequences for living according to that law. In Leviticus 26 and in Deuteronomy 28, we see that there are covenant blessings to love the Lord and live his way and there are also covenant curses to forsake the Lord and walk away from the Lord and the Israelites understood those terms very well they understood that if they loved the Lord and walked with the Lord then he would bless them he'd bless their barns he'd bless their offspring he'd give them the rain he'd give them defeat over their enemies he said I'll send the hornet before you and defeat your enemies so that the Israelites they understood that if they walk with the Lord they would be living the good life and we see something of that in the time of Solomon that those things were characterizing their life then but there is also the downside as well if they were to forsake the Lord uh, in a sense like it's described as like uh, being an adulterer um, then they'd see the downside of God's justice. The terms are clear and God is righteous. He is faithful to carry out the blessings or he's faithful to carry out his covenant curses or judgments. 
And that's what we see before us here in the book of Amos. Amos is a bit like a covenant lawyer. He's putting Israel on notice that they're in breach of the terms of the covenant. And that unless they turn back to God in repentance, they will experience the downside of God's justice. And so there's no surprises here for them at one level. They understood the terms. Now, at one level, um, we can relate to this too, can't we? Um, we know that we are God's people. We love the Lord. We're, we've got our faith in the Lord Jesus. And we are God's special people. A chosen people, a, a royal priesthood, a, a people belonging to God. That's what we're told in 1 Peter. And we know how to live God's way, both from the law that's been written in God's word and also the law that's written in our hearts. We know how to live God's way. And God knows we're not perfect as well. And that's why he's provided Jesus as our perfect sacrifice. The good thing for us and for those faithful people of God in the past was that Jesus did keep God's covenant. He always kept God's law. He lived by every word that proceeded from the mouth of God. Jesus always loved God, always lived God's way. And this is what we're told about his work in Romans chapter 10. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Jesus completes the law on our behalf. He fulfills the law. And since we're united to Jesus through faith, his sacrificial death on our behalf and his resurrection, he bears God's righteous anger against sin, our sin. He bears our failure to love and serve the Lord in our place. And the consequences of his sin-bearing are magnificent. They're wonderful for us. And Paul talks about the consequences in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And all this is from God who's reconciled us to himself through Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sin against them. The fruit of what Jesus has done in, in actually fulfilling the covenant on our behalf and bearing our sin uh, brings, to, brings this point that we are, we're at, where we stand in God's grace and enjoy reconciliation where our sins aren't counted against us. And that is, that is something which we can be grateful as members of the new covenant. And so what we need to do, though, is to learn the lessons of those who've come before. The Bible tells us that these things that have written in, been written in the past are for our benefit upon whom the end of the ages has come. And so we've got to learn from the lesson of Israel uh, not to be complacent, not to trust in things other than the Lord. We can't be flippant about Jesus and, and we can't be flippant about just living in sin either. Our challenge is to be amongst those who hold on to the gospel of Christ, hold on to what we have in Christ and not move from it. That's what Paul says in Colossians 1.23. We've, we've come to enjoy life with God if we hold on to Christ and we're not moved from the gospel.
And the reason why I also say that is because sometimes, as I've noticed over time, some people drop the ball. They don't keep coming to church. If you ask them if they're Christians, they say, oh, no, I've moved on. Well, guess what, friends? This is God's means of grace to keep us. We're here today seeing these challenges in Amos and the challenge for us too is to hold on to what we've got in Christ and not to be moved from that gospel. So there's a warning for us not to be those who drift away. We've got to feel the weight of this challenge and to hold on to the grace that we have in Christ. These are some serious things, but this is the challenge. Well, God will help us persevere and this is the way he does through hearing these kinds of messages and for us to take them seriously and to respond in faith. So may God help us to hold on to what we've got in Christ and continue to persevere as his people faithful to the end. Let us close in a word of prayer. Let us pray. Lord God, we give you thanks for your word that it's your means of grace to correct us, to get our attention, to help us not to be complacent and flippant in the way that we live. We pray for the times when we haven't thought that sin matters too much and we pray that you'd forgive us for our sin against you and and Lord we pray that you'd help us to, to flee from it not to flirt with it and instead to walk closely with you we give you thanks that you gather us to hear your word proclaimed and we pray Lord that you'd strengthen us to be those who want to continue to love and serve you uh, with our whole hearts Lord help us to encourage each other this week to to walk closely with you not to drift away and Lord help us to be mindful of those who might have been uh, wandering away from you, help us to be encouraging them to, to remember uh, your goodness to us in Christ, that we're new creations in Christ and that we have reconciliation with you through Christ. And we give you thanks for your love for us in the gospel. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs>